Okay, so if you are a Christian, if you have, have trusted in Jesus for your life, for your salvation, then you have been justified. That means you've been made righteous. Your sins have been washed away. You've been completely forgiven. God remembers your sins no more. Amen. And there's such a glorious freedom in that. It's such a wonderful truth, and it's one that we have to remember constantly. That's why we just took communion, is to remember that our sins have been completely washed away. We have been justified. And we remember that not only when we take communion, but we remember that all the time. Every day we need to wake up and remind ourselves, God remembers my sins no more. He has fully cleansed me. And it's such a wonderful truth that we must immerse ourselves in over and over and over. And yet, I would suggest that there's an even more wonderful truth. And that is that not only have we been justified, but we've been adopted. Okay, we've been adopted into the family of God. We are his sons and his daughters. I want to read a few extended quotes from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a theologian. He actually just passed away a few years ago. Um, but, but several decades ago, he wrote a book called Knowing God. And in this book, there's a chapter called Sons of God. And that chapter is one of my favorite chapters in all of literature, actually. Because I remember when I first read that, it was so transformational for me, so profound, because God used it to impress onto my heart that I am, I am his son, that I've been adopted into his family. And so I want to read a few, few quotes from J.I. Packer out of, out of that, that book and that chapter. He says this, our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which, since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made. Regularly, Paul speaks of righteousness, remission of sins, and justification as the first and immediate consequence for us of Jesus' death. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. This is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And I agree with that. We are in the book of Galatians right now. We're just passing the halfway mark. We are going to read Galatians 4, 1 through 20 this morning. And at this point, Paul has been, been building this argument and he's been arguing for our justification by faith through grace. And then he gets to what I think is, 
is somewhat of the climax. And he does the same thing in Romans in chapter 8. He gets to this climax where he builds all this foundation and then he says, you are children of God. You've been adopted. And it's such, again, a glorious truth that we need to reflect on and so we're going to do that this morning. We're also going to, he also in this passage contrasts it with our previous slavery. And so we want to draw that out as well, just the the enslavement that we were under, but then the release into the family of God. Okay, so let's let's read this. It's on page 974 in your your house Bible. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them." It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, so let's go, go back to the beginning, and he's, he begins this passage with a bit of an illustration. There's this, this child who is no different than a slave in this sense until this date set by his father. Okay, so, so Paul puts forward this kind of illustration. And of course, with every illustration, metaphor, analogy in the Bible, it's intended to reflect spiritual realities. Now, these, no analogy is perfect. Uh, we have to be careful about mapping it over too precisely. But there is a, a general process that is, is reflected by this illustration here. And so, so in this illustration, what we have is this, this before, and then there's this transition or transformation, and, and, and then there's an after. And, and so we have childhood here, and then there's this change of status at the date set by the father, and then the, the child enters into full maturity and adulthood and freedom and responsibility and, and assumes the full rights of, of his inheritance. Okay, so this is the, the illustration. And, and so... Again, he is, this mirrors a spiritual reality that we experience. So we are also going to go through some sort of process like this as humans. 
So let's, let's walk through, and we'll start with that, that initial condition of, of childhood. What does that mean for, for us, just for all of humanity? Well, in the illustration, the, the main point is that the child is under guardians and managers. There are other authorities that are over the child that control him. Okay, so that seems to be the main point of this illustration. And so how does that map over to us? And we might begin by asking, well, what authorities are we initially under? Okay, so all of humanity, we're under certain authorities. That's, that's the whole point. What are we under? Well, number one, we could just say the, the law, because that's what, what he's, he, he just basically said. So the child is under guardians, and just a few verses earlier in, in Galatians chapter 3, he, he specifically says that the law is the guardian. Okay, so the law manages, the law is the tutor, leads you to Christ. So, so he's saying that, that we were under the, the law. However, you might say it's not only the law. And when he's talking about the authorities that we as human beings are under, it's not just the law. After all, um, this may somewhat in, exclude Gentiles, the, the Jewish people were certainly under the, the Mosaic law, um, but he's speaking to a lot, of, a lot of Gentile believers, and this may not perfectly apply to them, but even more so, in this passage, he describes other things that we are underneath, that we are even enslaved to. So for example, in, in verse 3, he says, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then we go down a few more verses to verse 8. And again, he says, we're enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so this isn't talking about the law. When we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, and I don't think that's the law. Otherwise, he would have just said the law. And when he says, those who by nature are not gods, that actually has a a, a bit of a spiritual connotation. To use that kind of language, he's probably talking about pagan idols, even demons. So he says, says these things. We're, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to those that by nature are not gods. Um, and again, the elementary principles of the world's world whose slaves you want to be once more. So we might say that, that yes, we were under the law, but also elementary principles. And so our next question is, well, what does that mean? Okay, what are these elementary principles? Why does he say that? Why does he use that kind of wording? Well, what are elementary principles? It's a little hard to say, actually. And it's a difficult word to translate. And as I've read various commentaries and different translations, I just understand that this is, this is a little bit of a difficult term. Okay? But we'll, we'll try to understand it a little bit more. So it is the Greek word stoicheia. And in Greek literature, the time, it could be used in different contexts could be used in these contexts specifically. could be anything placed in a row like the letters in the alphabet, and so it was like saying our, our ABCs, basically the basics of something. could be the basic elements of knowledge. could be the physical elements of the world. At that time, earth, water, air, fire. could be the gods associated with those physical um, elements. So it was used in these different ways, um, basically implying something very fundamental, but, but again, the, the exact meaning, it, it varied. We can look at various English translations, how they translate this word. In the NIV, they translate it elemental spiritual forces. In the NAS, elemental things of the world. CSB, elements of the world. 
New King, New King James basic principles of the world. So again, there, there are different terms that are used for this, this word and different translators choose things differently. But why don't we look at the passages themselves and some of the language surrounding them and maybe we'll get a little bit of, of a better idea what this term means and what we are actually enslaved to. So let's go back to uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 10. And we see this term, elementary principles. You'll also see probably in your, in your Bible, there's a footnote that says, or could be translated elemental spirits. And it actually is translated elemental spirits in, in the book of Colossians, as we'll see in just a minute. But if we look at this passage, I, I just wanted to point out a, a couple things here that might give us a, a little bit more to go on. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, when it's talking about things that we are, what we are enslaved to, it does say those that by nature are not gods. And like I said earlier, this has a bit of a spiritual connotation. And so when it's talking about the things that we're enslaved to, it probably is referring to in some way evil spiritual forces. Another thing to point out from this passage is the result of what happens when we are enslaved to these elementary principles. And specifically, he says in this passage, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, this is the result. And so they adopt these very regimented practices. Okay, so that's, that's the result of, the, of, of uh, being enslaved by these elementary principles. But let's go to the book of Colossians. And this word is used twice in Colossians 2 in much the same context. This, this word isn't used very much in the Bible. It's told of seven times in the New Testament, two of them in Galatians, two of them here in, in Colossians. But it, let, let me read these, these two places where it occurs in the book of Colossians. First of all, verse 8, chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And this time they translate it elemental spirits, but the footnote says, or elementary principles. Then Colossians 2, 20 through 22, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Well, let me point out a, a couple things from these passages as well. So first of all, twice it mentions, um, as it's trying to describe this enslavement to elementary, elemental spirits, that, that they are according to human tradition or according to human precepts and teachings. And it seems to almost equate those things that these elemental spirits or principles are kind of hand-in-hand with human tradition or precepts or teachings. Okay, so that's one thing to note. Secondly, though, again, we see the result of being under these kinds of principles. And in this case, we submit to certain rules, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So, again, we see these, these very rigid, regimented religious practices that come about here. So, what, is, what, what does all this mean? What, how can we summarize this? I think this is an important term if we're trying to understand what we're enslaved to. How might we, we summarize this? Well, I'm going to give you just, just a definition that I tried to come up with that I think pulls in a lot of these, these concepts. 
And I would say that when the, when the ESV translates it principles, I think that's probably appropriate. It is talking about some fundamental values, ideas, tendencies, and, and really fundamental ways in which sinful humanity works. And I think that's, that's a lot of what, is, what it's getting across. This is really sort of the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the sinful nature. These elemental or elementary principles, the basic proclivities of humanity. I think we could summarize it like that. So let me give you the definition. I would, I would say this. Elementary principles are basic human inclinations influenced by demonic forces that emphasize rigid standards and formulaic practices, giving an appearance of wisdom and virtue, but not driven by genuine faith in God. So again, these general inclinations, these tendencies, but they tend to result in in these these rigid standards and formulaic practices. So with that definition, let me make a, a, a few points about these elementary principles. Number one, we are all, both Jews and Gentiles, controlled by these elementary principles. So whereas before it was talking about the law as the guardian, and of course the the Jewish people especially were under the law, Gentiles could still have the law written on their heart, but in general the Jews were under the law, but everybody is under these elementary principles. So it's just, just the way humanity works again. And so whether Jew or Gentile, we are all in submission to in bondage to these elementary principles. These principles use good standards, like, for example, the Old Testament law, although not limited to the Old Testament law, in order to enslave. So again, this general human sinful nature, um, it latches on. It's like these, these principles parasitically attach themselves to something like the law, and then they hijack it. Okay, they hijack the, the good intentions that God had for the law, and they use the law to bring us under bondage. And Paul goes into that in Romans quite a bit, especially in Romans 7, where he highlights the goodness of the law, the spirituality of the law, and yet due to our sin, the, the law is, is, is twisted by our sin, our sinful nature. Number three... These principles not only incline us toward obvious debauchery and licentiousness, that's what, what we might think of the sinful nature, but also, and perhaps especially, toward strict religion and self-sufficiency. Again, I think that's an important point. Again, we, we might think that the sinful nature leads us to just licentiousness, but here, the result of being under these elementary principles both in Galatians and Colossians, are these very strict rules. This is legalistic religion. And that's often what, what the, the sinful nature, what the world produces. And we see them even at work in secular religion today. You know, I, I think we're, we live in a very religious society. It's not a society that acknowledges God for the most part, but it is extremely religious. And, and it pressures us to conform to, to very rigid standards and to say the right thing and to do the right thing. And, and we, we are, are, are punished and ostracized when we don't. We live in a very religious society, and, and this is true in general of humanity. 
Because these, these elementary principles, as he's calling them, they work universally and they work in human cultures and use the systems of those cultures to bring us into slavery and create a very rigid religiosity. And, and even in our culture today, again, our secular religious culture, we, we feel that pressure. pressure. It can be very oppressive to toe the line and to do and say what we're supposed to. And, and, and it, um, our, our culture encourages us to strive and to try really, really hard. And we, we get on that treadmill and it's right where Satan wants us to just be, be running and running and never quite be able to attain. Okay. So, we are all enslaved to these elementary principles. And so this is really the, kind of the first step in this progression. Mapping over from that, that illustration, so we're in slavery. We're in bondage to this general sinful nature human tendencies. But then, as with the child, there's a change of status. And we go through this, this kind of transformation how, how would we describe this? Well, there's a change, I would say, on, on two levels. Number one, on the macro lever, level, there's the coming of Jesus who splits history in two. And so that's what it says. God sent forth his son at just the right time and splits history in two and introduces this new age of being able to, um, to access God in, in, a, in a new way through Jesus. And so Jesus came and he changed everything. He changed history. But secondly, this is, this is applied on the individual level. And so while Jesus came once at just the right time, we also each have the opportunity to receive what he achieved for us, and that is, that is adoption. So every, every person has this opportunity. You know, um, going back to the... the uh, uh, the illustration of the child and the date set by his father and maturing into adulthood. Um, in antiquity, in the Jewish culture, and even in the modern Jewish culture, but also in the, the Roman and the Greek culture, there, was a, uh, there tended to be a more precise moment at which a child transitioned into adulthood. Okay, so there was, there was even a ceremony often, or there was a specific age where, where a person goes from a child to an adult. And so there's this more precise moment. Well, it's somewhat similar um, with, with us. You have an opportunity in a moment to, to cross over, okay, to, to cross from enslavement into adoption. And there's a time at which that can happen, where we receive adoption as sons. And it says adoption as sons, just a quick side note. Of course, that means sons and daughters, um, here, the, the, the son, even the oldest son specifically, was, was the heir, and so he's talking about sonship, but of course that's, that includes everybody, that includes sons and daughters. But there could be a, a precise moment when somebody, somebody steps from enslavement into the family. They are adopted. I remember when we adopted our little girl, and there was a moment in a courtroom, actually, where the judge signed off and said, she is yours. And we received this document, and it's just this precious document, her birth certificate, 
Okay, and this, this birth, birth certificate, at that point it said that although she was born in Georgia and we weren't there, this birth, birth certificate says that she was born to Aaron and Christine Ritter. And we were given this, this, this document said she's ours. And she, she became my daughter. And in the same way, um, we can step into full relationship and the family of God. Now, I didn't always realize this when, when, I'm, when we're talking about our spiritual, um, spiritual status. I didn't always realize that there is this, this moment of transformation. There's this moment of adoption where we are brought into the family of God. I, um, when growing up, uh, we were a, a family who generally attended church. Um, and so if you were to ask me, are you a Christian? I, I probably would have said, well, yeah. Uh, that's the box I would have checked on the survey. But if you would ask me, when did you become a Christian? I might've uh, looked at you a little more blankly. And I would have said something like, well, I don't know, I, my, my, mom, my mom was raised Catholic, and so she took us to, to a Catholic church um, early on. And, and then um, at some point, late in middle school, my, my parents changed churches, and we started going to this, this Lutheran church. And, and so I was just always, I always kind of was. I, I, always, I always went to church. And that's, that's probably what I would have said. And I, I, it wasn't, um, I, I, I didn't realize that there, there, there could be an actual moment of placing faith in Jesus and receiving that adoption, getting that document. But later, while I was in college, after um, not attending church for a while, I, I was introduced to some people and they, they explained things to me. And, and I came to the point of belief and there was a, a, a time where I did take that step. And there was an intentional decision, and I placed my faith in Jesus. Now, admittedly, I, I, I can't tell you the date, the specific date and time. And, and, and there was a little bit of a process in that I, 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 I prayed, and then I, I had some um, reservations, and I prayed again. And, and, and so it was a little fuzzy in there, but I can tell you with confidence that I was not a believer in August of 1996 and I was in November of 1996. And there was a moment there of, of transformation where I was adopted into the family of God. And I just want to encourage all of you, if you have, have trouble um, remembering that kind of transformation, maybe there's opportunity, even today, to declare your, your belief and your allegiance to Jesus and to take that step and to, to be received into his family because there is a point where we are adopted and all it takes is a, a simple prayer. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And it's a simple confession. It's a simple expression to God. I believe. I trust you. I want to be in your family. And he adopts us. 
And so there is this, this change of status where, status where we are adopted. And of course, that adoption leads to relationship. We, we are brought into the family. We are sons and daughters of God. And we, we might, as Christians, acknowledge that. Yes, I am a, I, I am a child of God. But there, there can be times where that really sinks in. And when it really sinks in, it changes everything. When you really believe, no, I am, I, I'm a son of God, and, and you, you embrace everything that that entails. And that's what we're going for, is that, that kind of understanding, that experiential understanding of, of our sonship, our daughtership. And so to try to explain that a little bit more, I want to um, highlight a few characteristics of, of being children of God. Okay? And these are the three that I want to highlight here this morning. As children of God, we receive acceptance, affection, and inheritance. Okay? And I, I'm just going to go through each of these one by one. And we'll start with, affection, with acceptance. Now remember, secular religion is not accepting. Okay? And we grow up in a world um, where making mistakes is frowned upon and can often ostracize you. Okay, if you say the wrong thing, you, you can be removed. Okay, we do not live in an accepting world. Although the world claims to be very, very accepting, it is not. But as children of God, we are accepted, and we are specifically accepted, even when we do make some sort of blunder. Even when we do... Um, make a mistake, of course, when we sin, when we do things that, that just, just reveal our, our finiteness, our weakness, God still accepts us. I want to illustrate this with a, a personal example of, of a recent mistake that I made, and this isn't even a, a, a big one. I could, I could list a lot, a lot bigger, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, share this one because um, you all saw it. Okay, so a few weeks ago, last time I spoke, I started with this slide, and I had this amazing quote from Abraham Lincoln, and, um, and I, I started off my sermon, I shared this, and Abraham Lincoln said this in 1964. Okay. Um, actually, somebody changed that, it's supposed to say 1964, I think. Um, so the original slide said 1964. And I, um, I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but I, was, I added these slides at the very end, and I was just, I had 1900 on the brain, and I just wrote 1964. And, um, and I, I uh, um, and I, so I added that to my slideshow, and then I was going through it, and I, I just read it off my slide and didn't even realize it. I said, so, okay, Abraham Lincoln spoke in 1964. You guys didn't realize that Abraham Lincoln was contemporary of John Lennon and Bob Dylan and all of this, but, but that's why I'm here. I'm here to educate you about these things. And so I, I said this, and I, again, I didn't even realize it. You all realized it, um, but I, I didn't, even, didn't even realize it. That I, that's what I typed, and that's what I said. Until somebody told me afterwards, and I thought, did I really do that? Did I really just, again, it's kind of a small thing, but I, did I really say that? And I felt like a complete buffoon. I'm like, seriously, I, you know, I just, just did that. 
Um, and are there, ever, are there ever moments in your life where you just kind of doubt your own competency? <laughs> okay, where you just wonder, you know, what was I thinking there? And you start to, to doubt yourself. It happens to me. It's actually happens, it's happened more and more lately, I think, for some reason. But you just kind of doubt your own competency and you wrestle with that. Now, again, this is relatively small, probably not huge repercussions. I might have lost a little credibility. <laughs> Mostly, I probably um, just subjected myself to mockery from so-called friends. <laughs> <clears throat> For example, my, my former friend, Travis Nider, um, <laughs> he made, made these for me. And um, Travis was, he actually wanted to experiment with an AI image generator. And so he thought of me, and, and he'd, he'd made these for me, these, this 1960s psychedelic Abraham Lincoln. It was very thoughtful. Um, <clears throat> but probably not a, not a huge deal. You know, I can take it. <clears throat> But in all seriousness, what about those times when you make little blunders like that and they have much bigger repercussions? And we're not even talking about sin right here. Okay, there may be some, some sin involved. There's, there's probably a, a laziness or a carelessness and things like this. But it's not even obvious sin. It's more just kind of weakness, maybe a lack of competency in some way. Some, some kind of weakness there. What, what, what about when you make mistakes like that um, and they do have larger consequences? You, you, um, you make a mistake at work and it costs you your job. Or um, there's some sort of financial oversight that you make and, and it costs you a lot of money. Something you didn't realize, or or maybe you say you said something just offhand, you didn't realize it, but it deeply offended somebody, and it severs a, a relationship. You know, we we all, of course, make these kinds of of mistakes, and and sometimes they 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 really hurt, and um, they're they're really hard for us to overcome, and then they they creep into our minds, and we just constantly think about them, and every time we we do, we cringe, and they start to shape who we think we are. Um, and, and we're just, just kind of consumed with those, those mistakes that we, we make. Well, <clears throat> when, we, when we do those kinds of things, um, again, a, a, a mistake that's not necessarily clear sin, my, my justification doesn't always speak real directly to it, but my sonship does. I really believe that my sonship does. Because I, I, I know what it's like to be a father. And I know when my kids make mistakes or they don't quite achieve what they, they wanted to, it, it typically doesn't really matter. Sometimes that actually endears me to them more you know, when they're, they're struggling with, with something that, that they, they, they're having trouble achieving. Um, sometimes I, I, that, that moves me to come alongside them even more. Okay, there's, there's nothing that changes my, my acceptance of them. They are in my family fully. 
and I'm, I'm devoted to them, and, and there's a permanence there, and it's not going to change. Um, they're mine. They're fully accepted. And this is what it's like with God. And, and I, I, I wonder what it's like for all of you. What, what, what blunder comes into your mind? Maybe that had some pretty serious repercussions. And, and you're, you're consumed, maybe, because you're, you're enslaved to elementary principles that cause you to be so concerned about what everybody else thinks. You know, I struggled with that. Even just a little thing like, like misquoting the date of, of this quote, um, I started to think, okay, what, what, are, what do people think of me? And, and, and you, you, you torment yourself like that before you return. Say, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted fully. It's permanent. Um, this doesn't change anything with him. It's fully devoted to me. I'm accepted. Next, there's affection. <clears throat> um, so we are fully accepted, but then there is the affection of God. Um, I'm going to share a couple, couple verses from our passage here to try to draw this out a little bit more. In, in Galatians 4, 9, it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Okay, this is what, what he's saying. Come to know God, but rather to be known by God. It's interesting how he phrases this. He's putting the emphasis on God's knowing of you. It doesn't negate that you know him as well, but the emphasis is on his knowing of you. And you ask, What's, what does this mean? God already knows everything. So it's not like there was a point where he, he, he knew more about us. But there was a point where he knew us. And, and I think there's so much more nuance here in the, in the Greek and, and in the Hebrew and in, actually in lots of other languages where there's, more, there's a greater understanding of what, or there, there's a greater uh, range of words that describe what it means to know. And so often when we, when we read this in the Bible, when it's talking about knowing, it's this, this deep relational knowledge of somebody. In fact, we even read it early Genesis. We read Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's not talking about a mental, um, intellectual knowledge. No, obviously it's talking about a very intimate, relational experience. Somebody. And the English doesn't capture this that, that well. If you study another language, it might. I remember my, my early Spanish classes, and, and there's, there's saber, and there's conocer, and there's different words for know, and, 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 and one is more of that intellectual knowledge, and one's more of this familiarity and, and, and actually knowing somebody relationally. And that's what it's talking about here, that God actually initiates this relational experience with you. And we know him too, but it was his initiative. He, he knew us. And then we read in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And it says, it says almost the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
So, so God knows us. He comes to know us relationally, but then he, he sends his spirit into our hearts in order to produce something in our hearts where, where we grow in affection and we cry out to him, Abba or Daddy, Father. Okay, this is the work of the spirit. Now, the spirit does a lot of different things. Sometimes it can be hard to define the, the role of the Spirit. The, the Spirit has a, a number of different roles. The Spirit um, um, produces spiritual gifts in us, works miracles, produces the fruits of the Spirit, reminds us of what Jesus said, and, and, and produces wisdom and knowledge in us. But I think this might be the primary work of the Spirit. The Spirit comes into us and then stirs something in our hearts to the point where we, where we see God as Father and we cry out for Him. We just want to be with Him. We, we, we lean on him, we depend on him, we want him. That's what the spirit does in our, our lives. And, um, and that's, that's, that's what God, God is doing. Okay, he, he, he initiated this, this relational knowledge of us and then he sends his spirit to help us to respond in the same way to him, to know him and to adore him. And again, I can go to my kids and I can say that I, I, I adore my kids. I want to be with them. And I, I just, I, there, there's such a deep um, affection for them that's kind of hard to explain. I just, I just enjoy them. And this is how it, how it is with God and us. He adopted us into his family and he just, I think he enjoys us. I think there's a deep affection that he has for us. Keep moving along here. Um, next is Inheritance. And this a lot is, is, is a lot of the emphasis here in Galatians 4 and Romans 8. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs. And so we are inheriting um, all that, that God has, has made for us. And that, that we're going to, to experience that fully one day. We have this hope. And when we step into his presence fully on that day, um, we are going to, one, experience a, a, a deep sense of rest. Okay, we're going to get off that treadmill that those elementary principles are, are trying to get us to run. We're going to get off the treadmill and we're going to rest. And yet that doesn't mean we do nothing. It doesn't mean we just float on a cloud with a harp. No, that, that, that means we, we do as we were intended to do. We, we explore the new heavens and the new earth. We explore new galaxies, whatever it might be. We, we are going to step into that in one moment and we are going to inherit everything that, that our Father has. Okay, so this, these are, are the, the, the rights of sonship. This is what we receive um, when we are adopted into his family. But the, the point of Galatians, a lot of the point of Galatians is, is this, that the Galatians had experienced that, but then they were turning back to slavery. And they were putting themselves in bondage again to these elementary principles of the world. And so as we, as we close up here, these last few minutes, I, I want to highlight Paul's concern for the Galatians and try to understand um, what, what Paul was thinking, what was going on in his, his heart. Um. <clears throat> and so first, let's, let's, uh, let's just take a look at um, 
Galatians 4.13 here, where he describes his initial um, interactions with the Galatians. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Okay, so we try to understand this. When he first interacted with the Galatians, he says it was because there was some sort of physical trial he was going through. He says it was even because of that physical trial that he preached to them. And so we might say um, that, that Paul's ailment seemed to enable ministry to the Galatians. And then as we read further in the passage, the ailment endeared Paul to the Galatians. Now we often think that these kinds of physical trials, they are, they are hindrance to what God wants to do in the world. And yet we have examples like this where it seemed like God used this physical trial in, in Paul's life to open up a door and create a bridge to these people. God used this very powerfully. But in any case, um, Paul entered into relationship with them, but it was a struggle and he was laboring and it was hard and, and, um, and he was feeling this, this, this ailment, whatever it was. We don't know what it was. Some people surmise that it was some kind of eye disease later. And just a couple of verses later, he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. And so some, some think there was some issue with his eyes. Others might, might just say it was probably just all of the, the, um, the, the physical uh, struggles that he was experiencing because of the persecutions that he had endured. Um, he, he was stoned. He, he uh, um, traveled from city to city through really harsh conditions. And so perhaps he was just constantly feeling the effects of those conditions. Whatever the case, he was struggling physically. And yet he was still used and he could still preach and they, they were turned through his, his preaching. Um, and so we, we can just understand that this was the context, that he was, he was struggling physically, but he, he, he stepped in there and God still worked and they developed this really close relationship. But then after he left, people came in and they, they, just, they started to turn the Galatians away from Paul and his teaching. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So these Judaizers, these false teachers came in and they started turning the Galatians. And I can just imagine Paul, after going through all these trials and laboring for the, the, the Galatians, how frustrating it would have been for people to start to turn them from him. It's like what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is kind of like a jealous husband or a jealous father. These people are infringing on this, this beautiful relationship that I had with the Galatians and the, the relationship that they had with God. And they're turning, they're turning the Galatians from this and, and turning them back to slavery. And so he's just, just livid about this. And so he pleads with them. He's just pleading with them. And it's interesting, he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Again, you see this, this frustration, but, it, but also this earnest pastoral heart for them. We noted earlier, when we first started the book of Galatians, we, we noted how this is the, the one letter from Paul that doesn't include this um, greeting of commendation to his readers. He doesn't describe, you know, how, how much he, he loves them and how wonderful they are. He, he does in all of his other letters, even to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, who were pretty messed up, um, he, he still uh, really commends them highly, but he doesn't in Galatians. 
And so you, you sense this frustration. And yet, when we get to this point, he does use this very affectionate term, my little children. He doesn't use that term anywhere else in his writings. John uses it a few times in his writings, but Paul doesn't. And you see this, this earnestness, and he's just, just um, um, he, he cares so deeply for them, and he wants them to return so badly, and he's so, um, so frustrated that they're being drawn away. But he's pleading with them and beckoning them back and saying, little children, please return. Please return to, to your sonship, to your adoption. Don't be enslaved again. And I think he is pleading with us as well, and God is pleading with us. Because we, like the Galatians and like everybody, we have such a strong propensity to return to that enslavement. Okay, to set aside everything that we have in our adoption and to return to being enslaved by those elementary principles. I remember when I first came to Christ and, and I, I experienced all the wonder of knowing God, having him know me. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful, but it wasn't too long before I was tempted to look around me and to observe how the, the community, the church worked and, and what was valued and what was exalted and then start being concerned about all of those things and then develop very rigid patterns to try to win the approval of others. It's so easy to fall back in, into that. It's so easy to develop a very rigid, regimented Christianity. And I think through Galatians, God is, is pleading with us also. He says, my little children, return. Okay, give up your enslavement to those strict legalistic practices and remember that you're an adopted child of God. Band, you can go ahead and come, come on back up. We're going to sing one more song. But as we leave, we just want to remember and, and have these things sink in that we have full acceptance, we have the affection of the Father, and we have a, a hope, we have an inheritance to look forward to. And the Spirit wants to move in us and, and stir that affection to the point where we cry out, Abba, Father. Why don't you just go ahead and stand and we'll sing.